You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. We'll set off on a uh, fast clip today. We've got lots of things to present to you. Uh, I went down to uh, the... um, Victoria University campus in the city. They've got a uh, a, um, a fantastic little building uh, in um, Little Lonsdale, Little Lonsdale and uh, Queen, and it's the uh, College of Law and Justice, Victoria University, and they had a fantastic um, event. Uh, it was Bernard Collery in conversation with Kieran Pender. Secrets, Spies and Lies, and uh, we've got excerpts from uh, Bernard Caleri's conversation. You, This is uh, he, uh, Bernard Caleri now being released from uh, the arduous uh, legal battle to defend himself against uh, charges of being uh, acting against uh, national interest, uh, potentially uh, earmarked for prison, by the uh, previous LNP government. He was uh, uh, released from this by the Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus with the uh, uh, change of government in the the first time that uh, a power under the Judiciary Act had been exercised, in fact, which is a fascinating thing to realise. Um, it was very murky business. Anyway, we'll hear more about how murky it really was and how incredibly dangerous it was for the Australian uh, dem- uh, Democratic uh, project, uh, this assault on uh, Bernard Caleri's rights. It was a much bigger issue than just one person in the uh, um, sight lines. But anyway, we'll hear about uh, that. We're going to move on to... Um, Critical Mass, which is a great big bike ride that's going to happen on November the 18th. We're going to talk to Faith Hunter about that. This is the week that was. Blistering peace from Kevin this week. Uh, Paul Keating, not uh, the ex-Prime Minister, but Paul Keating, Secretary of the Sydney branch of the MUA, is going to talk to us about union support for Gomoroi people versus Santos and uh, Santos's desire to... uh, uh, puncture the artesian basin and uh, uh, r- run roughshod over the uh, Palaga forest up near Coonabarabran and uh, the unions are standing up beside the uh, First Nations people. 
as they say, if uh, the uh, Native Title Tribunal won't stand up for the rights of uh, First Nations people, then uh, it's uh, beholden on civil society to protect environment, First Nations rights and uh, the future of this country. Um, we're going to finish up with a, a chat with uh, Cathy McCarthy about the RAC, the Refugee Action Collective's art auction, which is on today at the meat market in North Melbourne, 2pm. It's also, you can also do Zoom bids. Everything's very, very hot to trot these days. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. To celebrate International Transgender Awareness Week, 13th to 19th of November, the Trans Pride March Melbourne is on Sunday 13th of November. Trans Pride March Melbourne highlights trans visibility like never before by uplifting voices in our community and continuously passing the mic. Attend the march Sunday 13th of November at 11.30am outside Victorian State Library, Swanston Street, CBD. And for those who can't make it along, 3CR will be broadcasting live from the march from 12 to 4pm. Your favourite Sunday Arvo queer programmers will bring you interviews, speeches and all the action live from the march. Tune into 3CR Digital, stream online at 3cr.org.au or dial into 855am for Trans Pride March Melbourne, Sunday 13th of November. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. We're going to go straight into the Bernicleary in conversation with Kieran Pinder. It was part of an event put on by College of Law and Justice, Victoria University. It's going to be part of, it's a part of a, a series of seminars they're going to be running. Um, and uh, it uh, is probably the first outing that Bernicleary's had uh, uh, since the um, announcement, July announcement. <clears throat> excuse me, July announcement by Marth, uh, Mark Dreyfus, the Attorney-General, um, that uh, there would not be any more uh, prosecution of a case against Bernard Caleri. Interestingly enough, uh, and this was all around a case that was going to be um, tried in secret, um, but interestingly enough, the reduction, reductions in the judgment to squash the case against Bernard Caleri um, not to have a secret trial were extreme. The legislation that allows secret trials remain and uh, therefore uh, is still a dark day uh, looming for Australian democracy. Of course, there's two other uh, people who are in sightline, but uh, from different areas. Uh, David McBride uh, about uh, exposing war crimes, alleged war crimes. No, it's already been established. Uh, Australian um, armed forces in Afghanistan and uh, also Richard Boyle who exposed uh, <coughs> uh, tragic behaviour at the Australian tax office. But anyway, moving right along, let's hear what uh, Bernard Caleri had to say. So Bernard, I want to go back to the beginning of all of this. Where were you when you first heard that your prosecution had been discontinued? I think you were overseas. T tell us about that moment. Sorry, we start, at the, start at the end and then we'll go back to the beginning. Where, what, where were you when, when you heard and, and what was the reaction when you got that phone call? It, so, was, it, 
Well, Kieran, it was about 6 a.m. Uh, Central France time, where, where I've got a house, and um, I was trying to get Odette to get dressed, and we were packing the car to drive 700 k's to my nephew's wedding in Brittany. And in the middle of that rush, because in July of any year, there's no accommodation en route. At no point, you, you just sleep in a garage stopover. So we had to leave the house and the phone started ringing. And uh, a member of my team, a well-connected member of my team, um, eminent member, uh, rang me and said, um, the decision has just been made. It was actually uh, on the 6th that um, Mark Dreyfus signed this once-in-a-lifetime instrument. It was the 7th um, when it was announced that he'd actually signed the instrument courageously because I'm fairly certain he had no support from, quote, the agencies and he certainly had no support from the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecution. So how did I react? Uh, well, to be absolutely honest, it meant that we couldn't get the disclosures, we couldn't get uh, the showdown that was looming. So, I, to be honest, it was great relief for Pollyanna and my family, and me to an extent, but I also felt and still feel that after the four years of trauma, they were they were effectively getting away with it. They'd lost government. They were determined not to have the trial before they faced an election. It had all gone wrong for them. They probably no longer care what they did to my life and our lives and to our country and to our image abroad and all of the egregious acts that led from Porter doing that. But um, so um, we drove off uh, in sort of silence and Pollyanna said after about 100 k's, how do you feel? I said, I'm sort of trying to work out how I feel because I can't come back for this. I was doing jury trial work as Robert Richter there knows and you can't return to jury trial work, particularly in Canberra because I don't know who'd be on the jury, a pro or against. And if it was a pro, they might, of course all my clients are absolutely innocent as Fiona already knows, <laughs> but um, you know, uh, so I'm back where I was, I went and did the district court circuit in New South Wales for about five years after I was Attorney General in the ACT during that tumultuous self-government stage. And at the moment, my, so my, my career has been finished. And given my age, I don't know um, if I can uh, easily get back to facing a jury work which I love. We might come back to the impact the case has had on you, but if we go back now almost a decade, and I guess a bit north from where you were in France when it ended, and this began, I think you were in The Hague. Well, I was asleep, and I was woken by... Uh, no, I've got to correct this. I can give the wrong impression. I was woken by a, my assistant, but by banging on my door. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, she said the... Uh, ASIO and the police have been in our chambers all day and at your home and have witnessed case. And uh, we were 
we were due to appear and they'd seized our brief. I, I've got this lasting memory of um, wonderful, mellifluously voiced Sir Ellie Lauderpack, who was my leader, saying to um, the eminent judges in front of us, Your Honour, I don't, Your Honour, I don't have much to say today because um, the Australians on my right have seized our brief so they can tell you both stories. <laughs> and it was just unbelief. I, I mean, it's just unprecedented, unheard of, shocking. Um, and uh, I couldn't believe that they would be so stupid, so absolutely stupid to publicly raid the chambers, tell the whole world before I knew we were asleep. Worst thing was, they didn't turn, they seized the phone off our only law clerk present and wouldn't let her go to the loo, for instance, with the door shut um, and held her in communicado all day, but then left and left our servers not turned off and for various reasons I can't go into, various servers that we had exigency plans for since K people well know wasn't my only client ever from various places and um, it was 19 hours in effect before we could turn the servers off. It was a massive breach of security. Massive. Uh, because we had, we had systems but they wouldn't have been able to defeat um, sophisticated inroads and um, just protecting case identity was vital to protect his life, but there are other implications of that. I've been appearing in Britain in uh, very classified, then very current um, matters involving the war in Iraq. Um, it was a massive intrusion, a stupid, inane intrusion, uh, telling the whole world that they were authoritarian I remember one of the first calls I got was from a professor I know in Berlin, and she said, oh, did you know, it's a great coincidence, but on the 5th of December in Moscow uh, this year, uh, the Moscow police raided uh, one of our legal colleagues in a similar fashion. So that sort of sent shockwaves uh, through the system. The next shockwave was when the Australian Sister General stood up and said some words. You can lead me on that. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the raid obviously a damning act by the Australian government, but then as Bernard has so beautifully segued in the proceedings, they then effectively accused you and, and the Timor government of espionage yourselves. It was just astounding. And, and it sickened, it certainly sickened Witness K, as I subsequently found out. I mean, both, well, another way, I mean, in our own ways, we'd served our country. Uh, I'd grown up as the, the child of someone who'd been killed in the war. We felt a great patriotism, my generation. And for a young, uh, young, smart silk to stand up and look down the bar table in The Hague, and accuse us of espionage was just the pits. It was a terrible thing to do. I accept that it was probably in the instructions. 
and I'm now increasingly certain that to get the warrant from George Brandis, the then and the now late uh, David Irving had alleged that uh, we were involved in espionage. I mean, Timor Leste, the impoverished Timor Leste, was <laughs> running an espionage operation against Australia. I mean, it sounds funny now, but it wasn't when that man stood up and pointed down the bar table. He pointed at the second most senior silk in Britain, um, former ad hoc judge of the International Court, and just, it was uh, an awful insult to me. Uh, because I, 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 Kay and I were actually serving our country. It was not in our national interest to be doing what I'm not able to talk to you about. It was absolutely contrary to the national interest. And what we had to disclose um, in, uh, included matters of ultimate national security affecting others. Let me start another way, Kieran. Um, what happened to the Timorese was that a lot of us could never understand why we wanted the Timor Sea resources when we had so much closer to home in the Browse Basin and all the rest. And for years I couldn't work it out. And then uh, around this same time, we found out, the Timorese found out, that under the granite dome in the Timor Sea was the only useful, practicable, but a massive supply of helium. Helium is a defence critical commodity since the airships of World War I. And Australia had paid royalties to look for helium and drill for helium all over our country. And it was a critical commodity, uh, which has a defence implication. And uh, Australia knew, China knew, Japan knew, Japan state government petroleum agency called INPEX knew we found out. Timorese didn't know. I was their advisor, I didn't know. We had found out. At that time, China was building its uh, nuclear industry, particularly many, many scores, dozens of, of new nuclear plants and building up its fissile material and it was dependent on Qatar, the UAE, Algeria, some from Poland, but mostly from Wyoming. So they needed an assured supply of helium. And uh, great coincidence, but David Irving as ambassador in Beijing, before he was brought home to head the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, had hosted the negotiations whereby the Chinese expected to find an assured, close supply of helium. And you've got to know this. The Timorese were apparently unaware of the helium. But to make sure of the helium supply, principally for Japan and China's nuclear industry, Australia needed to be sure that the Timorese wouldn't wake up to the helium and what it processed onshore, because it would change dramatically the field economics. Australia, principally through its proxy Woodside, was saying it's too expensive to 
across the 40 k's from Greater Sunrise to the south coast of the impoverished, unemployed south coast of East Timor. And um, the field economics suggested we use the existing pipeline connected to the Bayou Yudan field already piped to Darwin. But if the healing factor had been known to the Timorese, they could have swung the negotiations their way. They'd already done bathymetric surveys and tectonic, getting tectonic advice a big part of that, and we knew the, the alleged uh, Timor uh, Gap uh, trench uh, was not tectonically active. So we all would have worked if they'd known about the helium, but Australia needed to know, Australia needed to know if the helium, if the Timorese were aware of the helium. I can't go any further. And, and then I subsequently found out that the Department of Defence knew nothing about this. And we had a brief prepared for the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. We had a two-pronged thing. We were going to apply in the Hague, and we were going to pursue, if necessary, through the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions, this matter. And they didn't just search and seize our brief, they deleted data, and to this day we can't find our brief to the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. From November 11th to 13th at Catalyst Social Centre, NAM's newest radical community space, comes Catalyst Festival, a weekend of connection and resistance. There'll be workshops and talks on decolonisation, alternatives to police and queer and trans parenting. Performances from Skybelly, Double Doll String Band and Race Rage, plus films, food and more. Full programme and more info at tinyurl.com forward slash Catalyst Fest program. Catalyst Festival this weekend at Catalyst Social Centre, 146 Sydney Road, Coburg. Catalyst Social Centre is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we're listening to a uh, conversation between uh, Bernard Kaleri and Kieran Pinder. Kieran Pinder is uh, the uh, senior lawyer at the Human Rights Centre and was a continuous advocate, loud and um, proud, uh, to uh, um, make people aware of the injustice being uh, aimed at uh, Bernard Kaleri over the last four years, uh, secret trials uh, and uh, and being accused of espionage, as he said, uh, a great affront. Uh, but uh, there was more to this, as he continues to say. I'm bound in perpetuity by these orders. Mark Dreyfus has asked the National Security Monitor, Grant Donaldson, to look at it, and Grant Donaldson is trying to work out his terms of reference to look at this national security legislation. I've done lots of criminal trials. You've got one of your eminence, eminence agree here, Robert Richter. When the, the DPP are decent and honourable, when they are, they will insist that the police reveal everything, do the right thing. The Commonwealth DPP in my prosecution was unbelievably submissive. Walked out of court when we were ordered out of court. And I go back to um, 
the Guildford Six and the fact that we brought the DPP in to have an independent prosecution service. And I saw nothing from the Commonwealth DPP in, in our prosecutions that suggested that they wanted to know what was behind the redactions and what the court-only secret evidence was and judge-only evidence. I felt very low the day the single trial judge said that he would receive Michaela Cash's secret cachet. It, it sort of comes out of Robespierre and Fouché and all those evil days. Uh, uh, he received a sealed envelope from the attorney's office in my trial. Against our wishes, we don't know what was in it, and we don't know because not long afterwards, rather vehemently, he found um, against us and that we, he would maintain a secret trial. And, and, and it wasn't just that the Chief Justice had made a considered decision that the interests of justice were best served by a closed court, but the law did not provide any alternative but an entirely closed court. Now, one upside of, of, of this case and other recent cases is that it's demonstrated the inadequacies of the existing law, the NSI Act. The Attorney General has uh, asked the National Security Legislation Monitor to, to undertake a review. How important will that review be, and, and can you comment on the, the impact that the secrecy had on the case and on you? Yes, I think, um, uh, well said, Kieran. The, um, I've written to um, Grant Donaldson, the National Security Monitor, who's actually preparing suggested terms of reference, so uh, they're not even struck yet, and I think that's a very effective way to start it. But um, the NSI Act, as we call it, has a power in it that gives the directive capacity of the attorney to intrude into proper judicial activity. There's a power in it to declare that the judge in a national security case um, must give the greatest weight to the attorney's view. And that, that was done. But the submissive nature of the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions is interrelated, and I'm, I've written to Grant Donaldson and asked him to accept that he has to review the interaction of this horrendous set of laws with the independence of the DPP and a variety and a number of other laws that affected us. Um, on the way up to the Court of Appeal, there was a secret hearing and I'm allowed to say who the witnesses were. They were the heads of the secret service agencies um, and the departmental heads. There's a thing called the Secretary Security Committee. So four or five powerful departmental heads uh, sort of sift national security matters that then go up to the Prime Minister, the Attorney General and the National Security Committee of Cabinet. So, a couple of those people gave evidence. Pizzullo and Nick Warner, then head of the National Security Agency, and then under that, ACES head, Paul Simons, under that, Michael Burgess, ASIO head, and some others. And as a young man interested in Soviet activity, 
for one reason or another. I'd read Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, and I'd read of the uh, Stalin's uh, Moscow trials in 1935, 36, 37, and I, I had some insights there. And I'll never forget the way um, they were led in. I, I was almost certain Michael Burgess wasn't too keen, and he said hello to me on the way in. Um, and uh, you've got to know that ASIO come out okay in this affair. Duncan Lewis, who became the head of ASIO after David Irving. Uh, David Irving got a double shift, you know, head of ACES, mm -hmm. and then contrary to all of our learnings in the Cold War, mm -hmm. head of ASIO, mm -hmm. raids me, accuses us of espionage, and the brief that, you know, covers a period of negotiations in China when his ambassador disappears, and uh, he raids me, um, Duncan Lewis replaces him, because he's, he's retired shortly after that, he comes back as head of the Foreign Investment Review Board, but um, uh, before he comes back from the wilderness, Duncan Lewis arrives and declares that Witness K can have his passport because he is, quote, no threat to national security. And Julie Bishop went back to him again, because we got the papers, and he says, no, he's no threat to national security. And he's the decision maker, the head of Asia, for passports. But Julie uh, was able, through the Passports Act, to appoint, guess who? Head of ACES as the mm. determining authority. And, and Kay doesn't have his passport to this day, which is an outrage. Um, so uh, Grant Donaldson has a far wider brief, in my view, than we think. The anti-terrorist legislation, as Kieran calls it, needs reworking anyway. We do need some of the protections of it, but its misuse is evident, most evident, and my trial would have shown the misuse of it. What breach of national security did Kay and I cause? What? We've never heard it. They've never been forced to answer what we did that breached national security. What did we give away? What name? What, what technique that isn't in a John le Carre novel? What, what did we do that was actually a breach of national security? And they could never tell us, we never got what lawyers call particulars. We never once got particulars. They wouldn't give us by subpoena all the documents we wanted. Normally, you subpoena the documents. If the police don't produce it, the DPP often back you and you get it. You never got any of it. It was just a railroading affair to get me in jail. The thing that is immensely troubling to me at the moment is, and I've written to the Joint Committee looking at the proposed National Integrity Commission, of course the extent, the, the extenuating circumstances issue about public hearings, I've, I've joined and supported the transparency group on, but guess what? The same provision that gives the attorney the power to close down an inquiry, order secrecy, is in the bill. <laughs> Almost the same provision is in the... So I've written tactfully, because certainly Mark Dreyfus is a man of integrity, uh, I've written very tactfully and said, this bill presumes 
presumes the integrity of the executive at the top, the Prime Minister, <coughs> and the Attorney General. <laughs> it presumes that. And I've just written one sentence, I hope I'm not sued, because the public submission, they didn't publish it. I do not share that presumption. <laughs> I'm not referring to the current government. But as far as I'm concerned, the executive of our country went awry in 2004. And I'll tell you why. I'd worked so hard all those years in Timor to ensure that we outfoxed the Chinese. They were constantly on the leadership. They knew what was in the sea. They had done their own on the high seas bathymetric uh, surveys. And, and, and there, there was a great keenness in Beijing to, to get, to get uh, Timor working with them comprehensively on some good issues, um, silk road kind of concepts, but alternatively not on others. And when they came with Interfet, because a few of you know, the Chinese came with contingents, they set up very efficient police stations around the island, lots of antennas and all the rest, but I'm not, not being dramatic, I'm just saying that I worked hard to ensure and I didn't need to build on the defence relationship that was very effective. Because the undermining by the Howard Downer government was the absolute under undermining of our defence interests. Trust me. Constantly, DFAT undermined our genuine defence interests. But I worked hard to ensure, and I can only put it lightly, an effective intelligence connection between our countries. I worked so hard on that. And when you occasionally see me on television refer to utter utter treachery, I'm nuancing it because I can't speak about it, but it utterly undermined years and years of work being done in that area. For one thing that was very clear, one thing was very clear, that um, if you bug an ally, you, shouldn't, you should know what the implications are if you do do that. I'm speaking hypothetically, of course. And the, the uh, implications of it all were not... Gareth Evans wrote a great article recently. It was published somewhere. Saturday paper, was it? All of that. All of that was a no-no job. And, but the worst thing is, it had nothing to do with our national security. Nothing at all. Because, guess what? The helium was given away free free to Conoco Woodside and Impex. Yeah. Still to this day, it's gone away free. Timor missed it, but Australia was entitled to its, its 50%. We didn't get it, billions. So that's what I'm precluded from talking about. I can't go further to complete that story. Join us for the 2022 edition of The Change, Definitions of Freedom. Interactive theatre, 7 to 9pm on the 16th of December at the Honda Showrooms, Hoddle Street. We're also having an exhibition and preview from 5pm Thursday, 24th of November at The Store, Abbotsford Convent. Find out more on Facebook at The Change, Definitions of Freedom. The Change is presented by United Struggle Project, a 3CR supporter. You're with Annie on 3CR's 
Solidarity Breakfast on Saturday mornings and uh, we've just been listening to Secrets, Spies and Lies, Bernard Kaliri in conversation with Kieran Pinder. It was a, a event put on by Victoria University at their College of Law and Justice campus in the city and we're going to move right along to Critical Mass with Faith Hunter. G'day Faith, how are you? I'm good, thanks, Sandy. Good morning. Good morning. It is a good morning, too. Um, it's really quite nice outside. Um, tell us about Critical Mass. It's been going on for a while, hasn't it? Yeah, so Critical Mass just celebrated its 30th uh, birthday. It started in 1992 in San Francisco. Yeah. And uh, it started up in Melbourne in 1995, so we're, we're only a couple of years uh, behind. But it's been a uh, a worldwide phenomena, phenomena <laughs> <laughs> where um, cyclists take to the road en masse with the principle that there's safety in numbers and to protest uh, the lack of safe cycling infrastructure and the lack of safety on their local roads and try and get some attention put towards uh, the sorts of changes you need to make cycling safe and accessible. Well, you're uh, certainly uh, tackling a big uh, ask, which is Sydney Road this time. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the first time someone asked for protected bike lanes on Sydney Road was during the 1890s. <laughs> so this is how long <laughs> we've been waiting. And certainly at Marybeck Bicycle User Group, we've had this on our agenda since 2008, Um We've been talking to local politicians about it. It's a huge issue for locals because Marybeck is an area where a lot of people do use their bicycles every day. They use them to get to work, to get the kids to school. And if you can't also get to your local shops by that bike, then you tend not to go to that shopping strip. So for traders on Sydney Road, they're surrounded by people who... Um, are using their bikes but can't find their way to them. So I think, you know, it's an issue for the local community and it's an issue for traders as well. So this is a cultural thing, isn't it? Because uh, bike riding, oh, in fact, it's quite interesting since COVID uh, lockdowns, et cetera, et cetera. I, I'm a bike rider, so I noticed there was quite an increase in the amount of people who were riding bikes Um and there's been a cultural shift, hasn't there, uh, towards bike riding? Yeah, and one thing I think local shopping strips have really come to the fore in this because what used to happen was a lot of people left the suburb to go to work each day. But now, since COVID and during ongoing COVID, mm. <laughs> we, um, a lot of those people are working from home a few days a week at least. And we're starting to see that the commuter trips at the each end of the day in and out of the suburb are slightly down, but the trips throughout the day around the suburb to local destinations as people take a lunch break or squeeze in some errands are up. Yeah. So again, you know, if you're thinking about your local shopping strip, those people who weren't around during the day... Um, are now and they're, they're needing somewhere to go or to access other local services rather than the ones that they might have been doing in the city or something. So it's, um, it's a big issue for commuters and for 
those who want to use their local shopping strip. And the, the people that most impact are women and children, the elderly and the disabled, because these are the groups who don't tend to cycle when you don't have protected bike lanes. But in the countries where you do have good networks of protected bike lanes, you know, more women cycle than men, and the greatest, largest single group of people is over 65 who cycle. And disabled people also are able to use bikes as mobility devices, or if they're using other mobility devices, get around easier on them. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, it's interesting because, I mean, if you look at uh, Sydney Road, uh, the whole terrain across that area is, uh, well, it's a hill, quite hilly, actually. I mean, not that if you're in a car you'd realise this, but actually uh, Sydney Road's quite hilly and it's got an incline going up, you know, towards yeah. uh, Coburg. But also the narrowness, um, because there's so much on it, on the road itself, like the cars, cars become absolutely impossible as a as a um, a method of getting from A to B in a in a situation like that. It seems to me. Yeah, it's they're not efficient in very dense urban centres, and um, you know Sydney Road, the car parking that's actually on Sydney Road for the whole length of it, there's only four hundred car parks. Oh, is that right? It feels like um, insanely ama- insane amount of car parks, actually. They're and obstacles. Exactly. And, you know, there's 3,000 car parks behind the shops. Um, and what happens is as people are accessing the car parks on the street, it's not only that they're creating a danger to people on bikes and that, but the, that parallel parking and getting in and out of your parking spot, it holds up the tram. Yeah. And... You know, we don't have accessible tram stops on Sydney Road. Um, and the other issue is it it just creates this, like what you're talking about, this really congested, unsafe environment. And I think for many people, it's, you know, the picture is just one where the perception of safety or even a welcoming, enjoyable area to be in just isn't there. It'd be amazing. Imagine what it would be like if uh, cars were at a minimum and uh, people and bikes were uh, the primary source of movement on that street and trams. Yeah, it's it would just and walking. You could walking. So at the moment, if you're a parent with a pusher with kids, if you are um, using a mobility device, you're squeezed onto a pavement where you know there's a lot of the things we like on the pavement: some cafe tables and all that, but it's everyone squeezed into one small area. And, you know, Victoria Walks did a survey a couple of years ago. So only 20% of the people who were on Sydney Road in Brunswick had arrived by car. <laughs> that and doesn't yet, surprise you know, me. 80% of the road space is given up to cars. And yet they, this, this is not... Um, you know, it's it's blocking locals from getting to their local shopping strip and and um, enjoying that area because it's 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 a community asset, Sydney Road. We all own it. It's our mm. local shopping strip. It's funny, you know, because it's a working class suburb. Um, <clears throat> all the working class suburbs are, um, and it's an old suburb, 
uh, it's a walking suburb because people in the yep. past didn't have vehicles, right? Yeah, well, it's still a walking suburb. I think the proportion of people who walk to Sydney Road is, you know, well over 60% in that survey, and I, I can't remember the exact figure, but the vast majority of people get there by walking. And using a bike is an extension of walking. It, it enables people who can only walk so far to go a bit further. It enables you to carry more than when you're walking. And it enables people who can't walk very far um, to be able to move around independently because often those same people are able to ride a bike. Yeah, yeah. Uh, bike, bicycling is less uh, arduous than walking. Yeah. it's. And people don't think, realise that, but it really is. No, and, and that's why it's so good for many disabled people. And people don't realise that the extent to which disabled people use bicycles because the, the government doesn't collect any data on that. Um, but often if you're disabled, you're not allowed to drive. And, um, you know, it, it gives you another means of independent mobility where you're not depending on other people and you, you have that full expression of, you know, being your own master and being in charge of what you do, which is why we all love it so much. It's like why kids um, love riding bikes so much. It's one of the first times you get to just be free. Well, it's true. Um, we should get back to the critical mass and, uh, uh, you know, the details of it. And, uh, oh, oh, no, before we do, usually when you uh, point out the uh, need for uh you know, better facilities for bikes and all the good things that go with being uh, with bikes, uh, uh, and you know, you're targeting um, Sydney Road this time. Usually, there's this whole thing about uh, uh, a fight back from the um, local traders. But you're saying that the local traders are actually on board about this. Um, no, they're not. They're not. Oh. It's and and that's the the weird thing that. Traders have so much to gain. Um, when they wanted to remove parking from Ackland Street in St Kilda? Yeah, yeah, and also in Stonington, there was huge pushback. Go on. Yeah, but the traders in Ackland Street went and got commissioned some research and they discovered the same. Only 20% of people were coming by car and they got on board because they realised they would make that up with the number of locals who would come Um and overseas, the same has happened. Vancouver traders fought really hard against protected bike lanes and won. And now the Traders Association there is trying to get protected bike lanes in because they went and commissioned independent research about what they could do to revitalise their shopping strip. And the research came back and said, get rid of the parking. Oh, is that so, interesting? So the love affair with uh, the normalisation and the love affair with uh, cars... Uh, is really at the root of uh, stymieing a positive change. Like it's an imagined world in their heads. It is. Like the same survey that found that only 20% of people arrive at Sydney Road Brunswick by car, traders were asked to estimate how many of their customers were coming by car and and they estimated 60%. (laughs) So, And that is another worldwide phenomenon. No matter where you are, traders overestimate usually by at least 100%. So it's it's a really difficult um, 
thing to get through. And, and you know, I think it would be awesome if the Sydney Road Traders Association went and did some research because they that would show them how, you know, shopping strips like Sydney Road depend on locals um, and Sydney Road's struggling at the moment. Their foot traffic is down and, you know, there's a really good solution that would really revitalise Sydney Road and um, I think uh, for the benefit of locals and the traders, you know, it would be great if they could find a way to get to that point. Well, Critical Mass, you're going to meet at the State Library on Swanston Street, um, 5pm on Friday the 18th of November. Yep, and we'll have a second point at the Avenue Reserve on Royal Parade, which is just near Royal Parade and Park Street. Mm -hmm. So if you are already in Brunswick or north and you don't want to go to the city or maybe you're bringing the kids, you can wait there and the ride will come past. We're estimating maybe at 5.30 and you can just jump on um, and ride up Sydney Road to War and we'll be going to War Park in Brunswick where there's going to be a heap of speakers from um, Disability Resource Centre, uh, Melbourne Uni, Associate Professor Crystal Legacy, and a lot of uh, local Extinction Rebellion, and some of the local candidates in the election will also be there. Oh, it sounds like a good Friday night activity for 18th of November. It would be awesome to see everyone there. It's going to be great. Thanks, Faith. Thank you, Annie.
A wax solidarity, Bricky team listener, when the big polluting countries and the big polluters got together with their non-big polluting victims to explain that ongoing big polluting will be the antidote to big polluting, the fossil transition from fossils to fossils. An explanation explaining the name of the talk fest, cop that. And then they'll argue over the wording of a resolution showing their commitment to a fossil-led recovery, knowing renewables can't be part of the transition because, well, what happens when the sun don't shine and the wind don't blow? Although a few nuclear power plants mightn't go astray because they don't pollute if we discount the 200,000 or so years to sort out the waste problem. But then, given the parallel fossil-led recovery, that won't matter because the planet will be fried anyway. Oh, and they'll debate how much to provide for the non-polluters to adjust to the threats to which their contribution was, stroke is, roughly zero, give or take, before they go away and forget all that, and then they'll congratulate each other on achieving so much and say, goodbye till next time, next talk fest, by which time many of the annoying non-polluters who keep complaining and upsetting the big polluters won't be around to upset them, having sunk involuntarily into the briny. All this cop that intensity in a luxury resort in that bastion of liberty, freedom and democracy, Egypt. Delegates safely removed from the arrests, imprisonment, torture and summary executions of evil criminals like community, human rights, welfare, trade union, worker and other activists. True Blue Aussie basking in its commitment to cut pollution by 43% by 2030, achieved without cutting pollution, hopes to chair one of these talk fests with our Pacific family we suddenly so care about. Although not enough to prevent us sending massive and increasing levels of coal and gas through their rising seas, rising waters to other big polluters, making lots and lots and lots of lovely, lovely profits for our big polluters who tell us how much they so desire to reduce their big pollution, only not just yet. And thus, yet another cop will come and go achieving the lofty ambitions of the great polluters, the rich and powerful, and of the governments whose strings they pull. On these matters, the US of the UN of the US of the world engineer, Jeremy Fetvet, F-E-T-V-D-T, real name, is in Trublowasi working on a project funded by the coal industry to reduce the emissions from coal plants mainly by burying his, their and its heads in the sand, the ostrich solution. And Jeremy assured us, forget zero emissions by 2050, assured us coal will be around for hundreds of years. Just a pity there'll be no life around to enjoy it, other than maybe the odd reptile or some creature evolved to survive on a dead planet. Not even sure Jeremy would go down that well at the cop pollution talk fest. Well, other than with the big polluters who are paying him anyway, spouting their green credentials to enable them to pursue their brown-black intentions. In the Save the Planet Sweet and Sour Department, True he says it will join a global deforestation ban. That's the sweet bit. But, it says, we will achieve that in huge part by, quote, shifting deforestation away from government-driven regulation to private sector-funded market-driven solutions. Like, that isn't the reason we need a deforestation ban in the first place? Oh, of course, silly me. That's publicly funded, market-driven, non-solutions. Why would we think that's the sour bit? 
The Small Business Profits Association finally saw the light after upsetting the other sundry chambers of profits, the good unions, for supporting the evil unions, um, nation and economy, destroying anti-Trublowazi proposals for multi-employer bargaining, which the sensible, good, caring employer unions know will lead to strike action at the drop of a hard hat or before you could say Sally McManus. Joining all other chambers of profits in calling for the government to make some sensible changes to its caring business class relations bill. Uh, sensible changes. We ask caring business class spokesperson Innes will cost the workers. Uh, yes, we will accept this legislation. We will accept it will strike a perfect balance if they simply eliminate all clauses that benefit workers. This will allow us to continue to make workers' lives so much better. Naturally, the government has taken the caring employer's advice, backed up by the independents who Senate voted relies upon, who know that giving more power to evil unions would lead to a national disaster, and has begun making amendments to appease the sensible suggestions. Uh, we put to caring business class relations minister Tony Bark worse than, uh, it, it seems to be reduced to a strip of paper with lots of holes in it. The, the top bill's title, its name, seems to be the only thing left. And that's important because the name is what will make workers' lives better and lead to real wage rises. No, I exaggerate, because one section is intact, highlighting the powerful impact the week that was has on true politics. After our expose last week of evil union official Josh Cullinan of the Retail and Hospitality Workers Union, an evil union if ever there was one, upsetting great retail and hospitality caring employers by uncovering underpayments, shocking conditions, abuse, exploitation over and above, and other sensible business practices. Well, thanks to us, listener, the, the bits left in the bill not only exclude the evil construction unions from multi-employer bargaining, should this threat survive the cut, but exclude unregistered organisations like Josh Cohen's evil union or individual workers from the right to suggest some workers could be worse off under the boot, the better off overall test, leaving the right to appear before the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer will work choices, just looks like a commission to registered unions like the good, good, good shopping the workers association. See association, not an evil union, which since the retail and fast food lot has come along is sounding almost militant, almost as if it cares about workers as much as it cares about their caring employers. With the evil union and its restless workers sidelined, the Shopping the Workers Association can get back to business as usual, the business of business. And top marks to the socialists and Tony Bark were stand for heeding our warning. Well, they are dedicated listeners who seek our guidance and heeding the advice of the Shopping the Workers Association and caring employers and showing such concern for fast food and retail workers. Let's hope... Oh, let's hope the evil union doesn't find a way to keep making the lives of caring employers and the good, good union so miserable. Speaking of miserable, we can but imagine the tears shed, tears flowing in union offices, particularly the maritime unions, and in goody-goody, long-haired, commie, refugee support groups over the demise of a former week that was favourite, Peter Root the Workers architect of the aforementioned work choices, ostensibly making uh, evil unions acting as evil unions a crime.
There was that small mistake in telling us evil people seeking refuge had thrown their dear little children overboard. An, an obvious mistake, because we know Pete and then big supremo little Johnny Howhard would never, never tell a lie. As little Johnny said, he was a great true blue Aussie. He really was. He was a close friend. He, he really was, which is all that needs to be said about Peter Root, the workers. He had been suffering from Alzheimer's, obviously a very, very late diagnosis of a long-term condition. Which reminds me, the totally non-delusional former US of Big Supremo Donald Trump or the poor declared the defeat of his hand-picked candidates in US of midterm elections a great success, the greatest great success ever. Although we've got no idea whether he intends to run for Big Supremo again. Well, perhaps the odd subtle hint, as he poured his renowned vitriolic scorn on anyone who opposes him all over the Florida governor, whom he labelled De Sanctimonious, a guy who'd be rivalling Donald on the who's further to the right scale, ideological, if we could call it ideology, ideological buddies, but no. There may be a hint there. And given De Sanctimonious had a huge victory, the vitriol is likely to ramp up, although Donald will assure us that huge victory was nothing compared to his own great result, the greatest great result ever. Then again, Donald did tell us this week he won the last election by a greater margin than in 2016. In the truth department, he should be joining Little Johnny, paying tribute to Peter Root, the workers. Always a tough one, but the Feminist Solidarity of the Week award to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, a regular favourite in this award, for coverage of a middle-aged ex-footballer who portrays himself as a humorous, hail fellow, well-met, who has very conservative politics. He contemplated running for the caring business class Hayseed and Sheepshit Coalition, who has a new relationship with, quote, Brunette Beauty Justine. No, no, that's not earned the award. It's the headline. Billy finds a new filly. Good heavens, is he in a new relationship with a beautiful brunette horse? Then again, what rhymes with Billy and Philly? Lord Rupert of Wapping Senior Feminist Solidarity Award of the Week is on its way. And the Understatement of the Week Award to Uluru Dialogue Campaigner and Constitutional Lawyer Professor Megan Davis at the National Press Club. I think having Constable Peter Duffer on board would be a good thing. But I don't think we're there yet. Go on. See, understatement. I wonder what she'd really like to say. Although in fairness to Pete, giant minds have a lot to weigh up in deciding whether Indigenous people like Megan should be considered real human beings. Finally, 11-11. Poor old Ned Kelly. Such is life whatever that meant in the circumstances. And as we reported last week, the US of is making Pine Gap an even bigger nuclear target. It's 47 years since the slightest suggestion a socialist government may question Pine Gap led to Her Most Gracious Majesty sacking the government with more than a little help from the US of. Encouraging to see the mainstream media reminding us we must not forget. Good morning. 3CR Community Radio, giving voice to the community since 1976. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on your 3CR. And we've got Paul Keating, not the ex-Prime Minister, but the tr- the true Paul Keating, who's the uh, uh, Secretary of the Sydney MUA branch. G'day, Paul. How are you? Good morning, Annie. Uh, and very kind words um, there. I'm, I'm a proud 
that worked in when it, we did have a work in Harbour in Sydney Harbour, yeah. as well as uh, in Port Botany. So yeah. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's great to have you on because uh, you sent out a message telling uh, everyone that uh, there was a large contingent of uh, union delegates who went up to Coonabarabran to near to the the uh, the forests up there to support the Gumaroys' rights against Santos' uh, First Nations and environmental destruction. Can you tell us about how that came about, how the group uh, went up there and, and what happened? Yeah. Well, my, my own personal um, situation where uh, the MUA Sydney bands got involved uh, dates back about three years ago at a... Um, uh, at a rally in Sydney. Um, it was an Invasion Day rally, and there was a young student, a Gummeroy woman, who uh, spoke, and it had a, an enormous impact on the crowd. And she spoke about the struggles of her people, the Gummeroy people, fighting Santos over uh, many, many years at that time. Uh, they'd rejected uh, the Santos project uh, on the grounds that they uh, defined their own sovereignty and their their land rights and that they would fight for it. And they they prosecuted then and continue to the um, uh, the country, the Pilliga Forest, has been uh, in the pristine way uh, for many thousands of generations and they are the custodians of that country. Um, and... Uh, on the basis of um, uh, the plan by the Santos um, uh, Gas Company, which I should point out, um, they want to start with 850 gas wells in this region. Um, the Gummeroy people very clearly outlined that this is uh, a very sensitive country. It sits on the Great Artesian Basin, and um, uh, it cannot be put at risk uh, by a gas company for short-term gains that could have um, uh, finite consequences to all uh, living creatures on that land in the future if things go wrong. The weird thing about this is that uh, everybody in Australia except for big business and the government, it seems, knows that we need to change what we're doing if we want to have... I mean, the whole idea of doing these exploratory uh, wells for gas in the Artesian Basin just seems so bizarre. Well, the, the environmental argument doesn't stack up exactly. Uh, we have a a climate crisis never before in the history uh, of the planet. And we need to take direct, direct action for that change. Um, these, uh, the economic case for the gas is not there either. There's enough gas in the system, and we know that. It has been poor federal and state government um, policies uh, that have completely failed to address, obviously, climate action, but also dealing with the nature of the impact 
on um, our communities across the country with the um, crisis in capital and the uh, cost of living uh, crisis that continues to, uh, well, only affect the working class uh, and the poor most and the vulnerable most um, uh, mostly um, is the is the threat that we need to fight um, and you know build a people's movement for the changes that we need. Um, the labour movement in New South Wales, um, you know, unions New South Wales um, on the seventeenth of March. Um, had this discussion about solidarity with the Gummeroy people. And there was a resolution put up by the MUA, uh, by the Sydney branch, after discussions with the Gummeroy people, with a number of unions and um, community groups, um, whereby they explained what, where the situation was and their struggle. Their 11 years of fighting Santos had led it to um, a position where... Uh, the parties had met finally, um, and in that finality, the Gumroy people had made a decision when they convened um, to reject the Santos project. And in those discussions, they explained to us, we rejected. They gave their, uh, their reasons. They put out a statement. All that was out there, um, and we decided that we would... Um, uh, work with them in regards to a resolution of solidarity, um, and that resolution was then uh, passed a couple of weeks ago at Unions New South Wales at a convening of our uh, council. Um, and from there, uh, there was an invite to Coonabarabran, um, and we had a large convoy, about 50 um, trade unionist leaders and activists headed up there, and it was through that weekend, um, you know, we sat down, we went through the Pilliga Forest and country with these wonderful uh, people who mm. explained their plight. It's a lovely it's, place. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. It, uh, it, you can't help but feel, um, you know, better for it when you go up there. It's pristine. It's just a gorgeous um uh, area and the idea that a company of this nature is prepared because it, it's it's not about it's not about anything other than profits and um, uh, for a company that completely um, has rejected uh, the um, you know the decision made by the Gummeroy people and that's why that they've taken it to the Native Title Tribunal which in itself we have seen now for many decades has proven to be just a window-dressing exercise that allows the mining and gas companies um, to get their way. And that's what's happening here. The decision now could be handed down any time by the tribunal, which is stacked uh, by uh, appointees that are climate deniers, have connections, uh, personal connections with... Uh, uh, with those that are employed by Santos, and these are the people that are going to make the decision in this native title tribunal. The Gumroy people said to us, it, it, "It's a situation that's urgent," um, and with that, the uh, trade union movement in New South Wales, and I'll put it out to 
all your listeners. Um, uh, this will be one on the basis of a grassroots uh, campaign movement uh, by our community. Um, when the call is, is asked for us to go back up there, we'll be there. We'll be there um, um, uh, right across our whole labour movement and our communities to defend the interest of um, the Gamaroy people and their right to sovereignty. They're determining their own sovereignty. I think this is... And land rights. I think this is a, um, a struggle uh, that we will be defined of our time, uh, given that there's a growing movement across the broader communities that we come from in understanding the, um, the brutality that's been waged since colonialism on uh, our First Nations peoples. And there's this movement of young people that are mobilised in struggle. They find themselves in this world where um, the deal for housing security and job security, it's not there. And then the existential um, crisis of the um, of, of our time with the climate um, crisis and the action that's needed. So well, you, well you, do, you do actually say it's not just a, a moral support. It, it, it's about um, mobilisation and uh, including blockades. Um, that's correct. And direct we action. Blockade. We will blockade. I make no bones about that. Uh, I speak very openly with our members and also within our mighty trade union movement. And at all community events, um, I speak about this, and so do many now, uh, in relation to our commitment to this struggle and this fight. We will fight alongside the Gummeroy people, and that means action. That means people on the ground, and that means blockades. Uh, we know all too well that the... Um, the changes that have happened in this uh, state that happened around the country around the right to protest. Effectively, uh, the Perrottet government, the uh, state Liberal government, has put, in, put a law in place now that criminalises the right to protest. Uh, for things like this, uh, for the people to mobilise against governments, bad governments, bad laws, um, uh, to defend our interests, whether it's against war, uh, whether it's, it's for, um, you know, Indigenous justice, First Nations justice. Uh, and we, we do live in an era where uh, there's a growing consciousness to right the wrongs for First Nations people. Yeah, but it's also survival, Paul. It's survival. It's like you said, instead of gas-fired disposition, disposition, we urgently need to be strengthening First Nations rights and investing heavily in a just transition away from fossil fuel with large-scale employment in renewable energy and sustainable development. I mean, it's about survival. Exactly. And no community left behind. Uh, and at the, at the front of that, uh, we have a strong view in our union, and I know across the working class uh, that are building a, a more just uh, and a, a stronger political view in, our, in the interest of our class. And that is, there won't be any justice for the working class unless justice is first served for our First Nations peoples. And this is a just fight. And it'll be a fight that we will... We're used to, as a movement, we've seen... Now, in the 
developed world, the most um, oppressive industrial laws that are in place. And we've got them in this country and have been here for a, a couple of decades at least now. Yeah. Uh, we've toughened up in that space. Uh, we've become resilient. Uh, we've mobilised. And uh, we're used to fighting in battles of attrition. Uh, so if Santos want to fight the Gamaroy people, the Labor movement, uh, will, they'll be picking a fight with us and we'll be down there. Uh, and that is no threat. That is what we will do. Thanks for, you know, about. we have to... We have to uh, 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 finish, but uh, thank you very much for talking to me. And yes, you're right. This is uh, this is the time for civil society to stand up uh, against big business. Yeah, I fully agree. Thank you very much, Annie. Yeah, thank you, mate. There are now 189 people on hunger strike. 62 have sewn their lips together, including two women and five children. For Woomera, this isn't an unusual day. We have an old saying in Persia that says, there is no darker color than black. So we were in the camp, we have two options. Either deporting us to back to persecution, to prison, to death, or die in the camp. But I think you guys give us a third option, which is another try. They bent like half-cooked spaghetti. We didn't expect it to happen like that, to the soundtrack of Amelie, a popular French movie at the time, blowing across the desert from dusty speakers. The fence began to fall, under the weight of people wanting justice, under the weight of people that had had enough. Join us for Woomera Stories on Monday, November 21st and November 28th at 6pm on 3CR. Already they've set up camp only 200 metres from the Woomera Detention Centre's main gate. And uh, you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and uh, we've just uh, got uh, Kath McCarthy from uh, Rack. Are you from Rack? Yes, I am. Yeah, Refugees Action Collective, because there's quite a few people that are involved in art meets activism, art auction fundraisers supporting refugees. Do you want to quickly tell our listeners about what's going on today? Yeah, thank you. Um, So the Refugee Action Collective have organised an art auction fundraiser where we've got around 30 artists who have donated their works. These are mostly prominent artists who have donated works for auction to support Refugee Action Collective and we're going to split the money with the Brigidine Asylum Seeker Project. The Brigidine Asylum Seeker Project do the really, you know, the frontline work of um, finding housing and clothing and feeding and helping refugees who have been released from detention to find their way into the community, um, looking for jobs, etc. They've been doing that for probably as long as RAC's been going, which is about 20 years. And Refugee Action Collective, we're focused on... We're we're an activist organisation 
who for the last 20 odd years have been campaigning um, for a better deal for refugees in Australia, um, whether it's uh, the people in offshore detention or the people who are locked up in Melbourne and around Australia or the people who are languishing in the community after 10 years still with no certainty about their future, um, living with um, minimal rights, um, you know, kids that have been born here who aren't allowed to go to university um, because uh, they're not uh, they're not citizens, and just general um, disadvantage that's been imposed on people who came here seeking safety. That that was what they did, and that's how we've treated them. So um, this art auction is going to be at the um, meat market stables today in North Melbourne. And we're opening the doors at 12 for viewing the artworks and the auction will begin at 2. And we already have 14 pieces that are um, online silent auction. So that's already live and that's going off, which is amazing. We're we're very excited that people are supporting the cause. Um, So, you know, we want as many people as possible to rock up today or go online the website is www.artmeetsactivism.com. So we're bringing art and activism together. And um, we also have three artists who have lived experience of Australian detention system. They're refugees, one still in detention, two have been two medibac refugees who were released. They are all artists and... Uh, they have provided a piece each. But when we auction their pieces, we're giving them 100% of what we raise for their pieces um, to support them um, uh, to live here in Australia and the one in detention, it will support him to continue doing his art until he's released and the fight goes on to have him released. That's a great, great initiative that you're uh, involved in. You've done this before, haven't you? Um, well, no, not really. I haven't done an art auction before. Oh, it's very <laughs> no. exciting then. Well, you've done yeah. a great idea. I mean, it's yeah. it's a fantastic uh, all-round thing, you know, the Zoom bidding and the, uh, and the location's great because... Uh, uh, North Melbourne there, Meat, Meat Market, Stables, 2 Rickham Street, North Melbourne. Mm-hmm. It's a great location. It is a great location. It's quite central. Um, I'm a little bit worried about parking. That can be tight in the area. Oh, but, but they should be riding their bikes. Exactly, and coming on public transport. Yeah. <laughs> yes, mm. yes. So um, there'll be uh, free drinks and there'll be some free food as well and we've got an art room set up and an activism room set up. So there will be um, like projections, there will be a stall with um, our T-shirts and pamphlets and petitions. We've got lots of rack banners and posters decorating the space so people get a real sense of what rack does and... um, you know, why why we're still doing what we do. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it all kicks off at 12 and the auction, the live auction is uh, at, at 2. Yes, and if anyone can't come, you can bid via Zoom. So you just need to go on the website and um, register to bid via Zoom. 
and or you can go on the silent auction, um, which is an online thing. You don't have to be there, but you can be. So if you want to see what you're bidding for, if you're doing the silent auction, you can also come. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Kath, and good luck. Thanks, Annie. Thanks so much. And that's it for uh, Solidarity Breakfast this morning. We heard from Bernard Caleri, who was talking to uh, Kieran Pender, part of uh, Victoria University um, Law and Justice uh, series of uh, events. Uh, th- we followed it up with uh, Critical Mass, talking to Faith Hunter about this great thing that's happening on the 18th of November, 5pm, uh, that's Friday, starting at uh, the State Library. There's also a spot further along uh near Sydney Road where you can join the ride for uh, action for safe bike paths and um, better access in urban environments. This is the week that was. Paul Keating joined us from uh, the Sydney branch of the MUA about the fight for Gomorrah land. Uh, And we just heard about the uh, rack auction, which sounds like a great thing to be doing on a light, nice day on uh, on Saturday. But uh, also uh, there's a Zoom uh, connection, which is uh, you should go to artmeetsactivism.com and you will be able to find out more. Okay, we're going to leave you uh, with uh, a song and... Uh, Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. Let's find something that might be amusing for us all to listen to. Hmm, let's see. Well, I really like this woman, uh, so I'll play it. Uh, Kate Vigo, she's a great performer.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.